Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America Prospects podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We're joined by a very special guest today, Boston Globe beat writer Alex Spire, fresh off of uh, covering the World Series. Alex has been BA's Red Sox correspondent for a long time now and uh, did the top 10 again this year. Alex, before we delve into the future, I do want to hit on this year real quick. Uh, just what was this team like? You know, you've been a part of covering this team when they've won the World Series in 13, 07. How was this team different and just what's your overall sense of where the organization is coming out of this World Series? Well, it was, it was, it was different because um, there have been times when homegrown players have been an important part of the Red Sox organization. Um, for instance, in 2007, Dustin Pedroia and Jacoby Ellsbury and John Lester were all kind of this emerging force. Uh, in October, but those were the guys who were supplementary to the veteran corps that had largely been acquired from outside the organization. This time, the Red Sox had exceptional players who had been uh, who had been brought in from outside the organization. When you're looking at Chris Sale, David Price, J.D. Martinez, but those guys were the supplement to the core. So this was, to me, this was, um, and you know, my bias is probably uh, towards thinking this way a little bit based on covering, you know, covering the system for you guys since 2007. But uh, this was, to me. The, 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 the first Red Sox team that was, that was built around the young talent, built around the young talent first. And, you know, when you're looking around the field and you see, uh, you see Xander Bogart and Mookie Betts and Jackie Bradley Jr. And, uh, and Christian Vasquez and Rafael Devers and Andrew Benintendi, guys who I've been covering basically since their first day in pro ball, um, that, that did have a striking feel to it. All of those guys remain under team control for at least one more year. So they, they're in the middle of this uh, of this window that the team had been um, had been aware of for uh, for some years uh, for for some years at this point, um, and uh, and so from that sense from from that standpoint, this did feel like the kind of culmination of a long-term vision, one that preceded Dave Dombrowski. Uh, you can argue that it dated back to Theo Epstein, certainly dated uh, to Ben Sherrington's time as uh, as the GM. But you know beyond that, so there's a long-range vision underlying it. And then there was the uh, and then there was the way that that long-term vision was brought to fruition in 2018, for which a number of the decision makers, whether it's Dombrowski or whether it's Alex Cora, who was so so good at connecting with that young core, and for that matter, anyone else on the team, regardless of their age demographics, um, in order to kind of maximize the, the yield on, on on their abilities and um, to kind of uh, to, to kind of produce this team that was. Um, remarkably focused throughout the course of the year that um, had a great shared passion for baseball, like the amount of, of baseball that was talked. Uh, I, I think that one of the things that's interesting about this time in baseball is that like, it's a great time for baseball geeks, and it's a great time for baseball geeks who are playing baseball because guys who kind of are into talking about swing paths and, you know, and plans of attack and, uh, and how to shape pitches have so many tools available to them that um, this is, you know, if, if, you have, if you have players who are open-minded, they can, uh, they can make some really interesting improvements along the way. And I think that this Red Sox team was reflective of that as well. Absolutely. You know, you, you hit on a point earlier that I had talked about with J.J. Cooper on our podcast. If you look at the construction of this Red Sox 25-man, their World Series roster, seven of the guys were acquired under Theo Epstein's regime, seven were acquired under Ben Charrington's regime, 11 were acquired under Dombrowski. So 
While Dombrowski made a lot of the final trades that made the absolute difference, and, and look, you have to make those trades to finish the job, I thought it was interesting, as you mentioned, this was a, a homegrown group that was almost a decade in the making. You go back when uh, Bogartson was signed. That was 2009 when he was first signed. It's interesting. This has been kind of a, a long process culmination, uh, it feels like, this group. Because Christian Vasquez was drafted in uh, in 2008, mm -hmm. um, he was uh, I think the third catcher drafted in that one behind uh, behind the more decorated uh, Tim Fedorovich and Ryan Labarnway. <laughs> yep. Um, and ended up being uh, and ended up being the guy who really anchored the Red Sox pitching staff throughout the postseason. So you know I I mean in in many ways it dates back to Theo Epstein's introductory press conference as general manager in 2002 when he declared an intention to create a Red Sox team that was uh, a scouting and player development machine. And there's there's a lot of that machinery, I guess, on display uh, in terms of the group that was, you know, that, that really was, uh, that really did anchor uh, anchor this title run. And, of course, that scouting and player development machine was, was built largely with, you know, with Ben Charrington um, as the guy in charge of, uh, in, in charge of the minor league system. So, you know, Dombrowski did a good job of coming in and recognizing those guys who could be the most impactful contributors at the big league level the fastest, and he used them as big, you know, he used them to reinforce uh, the big league roster around about the Benintendis and the Deverses, um, and then he traded guys whose, you know, whose contributing time horizon was going to be in the more distant future. You know, the high-end guys, no doubt, but uh, guys with greater uncertainty because of their distance from the big leagues or maybe because of some, you know, some hickeys or questions in their game, whether it was Moncada's strikeout rate or position questions for Michael Kopech. Uh, at the time that they traded him, he had never pitched above high A um, and, throw, and threw so hard that it kind of created this existential question of how hard can a guy throw without blowing out. Absolutely. This young group that they used to get up and the other young group they used to, you know, make some trades obviously set, set everything up for success this year. In terms of the future now, this is a Red Sox system that because, hey, they've graduated a lot of guys successfully, they've traded a lot of guys in successful trades, the current farm system is not particularly particularly strong. Uh, we have a new number one this year in Bobby Dahlbeck. First of all, what was it about Dahlbeck that for you and your discussions with evaluators made him the new number one in this system? And then the second part of it is, how good is he really? Is this more of like a solid guy who's just on top of a really weak system, or is there a sense he could be more than that? So this was this was the hardest number one uh, decision that I've had, and I think that this was uh, this. I think this is the sixth year that I've done uh, the Red Sox farm system for you guys, um, the top thirty list. And Dahlbeck was the hardest call that I've had um, because you know on the one hand he showed fantastic tools. You know he has top of the charts power with the ability to, you know, to drive the ball crazy distances. Um, and even when he mishits balls, he has, I mean, you know, you don't want to get too carried away. I, I would say it's like it's kind of an Aaron judge light scenario where when he makes contact and mishits the balls to the opposite field, he's so strong that it can still go out of the park. Um, but there's a huge element of swing and miss to his game, which is uh, Ian. And I think that his strikeout rates in the minors may be, have been even greater than those of Judge. Um, so, you know, you're looking at a guy for whom the range of possible outcomes is enormous. If he has, he showed the ability to be at least an above average defender, if not a plus defender at third base. So, uh, so from that vantage point, when you're putting together 
the power. He has a generally good idea of the strike zone, even though you know there will be chase on the breaking balls, and there there can be swing and miss inside of the strike zone. Um, he still has a good. He still does a pretty good job of distinguishing between balls and strikes, which is maybe one of the things that allows guys to have to lower their strikeout rates, even as they move up levels. Um, but you know, if he if he hits on the power, if he is a two fifty hitter with a three fifty OBP and you know thirty five homers uh, as a third base as a as a third baseman who shows good defense, that's a really good player. Now it's another question if he's a two ten or two twenty hitter who strikes out forty percent of the of the time and becomes so frustrated that it becomes really hard for him to tap into that power as he's making all kinds of adjustments. So the the possible range of outcomes is considerable. You're looking at a guy who has, you know, you, you could be looking at, uh, you know, you could, you could argue that his floor is maybe that of Mark Reynolds, but I don't even know that that's the case. You know, it, it may be that he's even more of a risk uh, than that, but his ceiling, you know, could be that of something like Matt Chapman Light. Um, Chapman obviously was also a guy who had a serious swing and miss in his game and who seems to have just kept developing uh, as a hitter as he's moved up and who's, you know, who's a better defender than Dahlbeck, but Dahlbeck shows, you know, Dahlbeck is, Dahlbeck is good. Dahlbeck is good out there, and uh, there are some physical similarities with bigger guys with tremendous power. No question about it. I think Matt Chapman, he's one of those rare guys. You know, most guys, what their batting average number was in the minors tends to go down when they get to the majors. Chapman was one of those rare guys who the number actually went up for some of the reasons you stated. What's the confidence level uh, that Dahlbeck will be able to do that? No idea. I mean, really, like the the range is the range is enormous. I think that there was over the course of the season, like if you if you if you talk to people who approach it from an analytics perspective, Dalbeck's strikeout rate was high enough. It was over thirty percent for the season in the minors, and it was you know right around forty percent in a brief brief end of year look in Double A. Um, you know, anal- analytics people are going to be pretty skeptical about uh, about the likelihood that he hits. Um, that he hits on that ceiling. But if you talk to evaluators, or frankly, if you talk to Dahlbeck himself about the approach that underlies, you know, kind of some of the higher strikeout rates, the fact that uh, he's pretty candid about the fact that, you know, base is empty situation, he is going to be, uh, he is going to be uh, looking to drive the ball out of the park and create a run. And with a runner on base, um, you know, especially with the runner on scoring position, he's going to be looking to, he's going to be, he, he recognizes that the value of contact uh, goes up considerably. Um, in those situations, and so he's going to be looking to do something else. And you know, there's there, there's statistical evidence that this isn't just lip service; that he actually did prove a bit adaptable in his approach. Um, then you know, people people believe that he goes to the people who watch him, uh, and this includes me. I, I saw him a couple of times this year. Um, recognize that this is someone who goes to the plate with a plan, who has an idea about what he's trying to accomplish as a hitter. He is a cerebral hitter. Who, as a result of that, you kind of, uh, I, I, I tend to believe that this is a really good era for cerebral hitters, mm-hmm. um, for guys who are able to, uh, to think about what they're trying to accomplish with their swing, what they're trying to, and how to get to the greatest form of productivity. Um, you know, I, I think that there are elements that suggest that, you know, that suggest that he could, uh, he could tap into that upside. And the defense helps, you know, the fact that he's going to be a solid defender will help to give it, will help to prolong opportunities. Um, in the big leagues for him to figure things out on the offensive side of things. Absolutely. You mentioned that this was a very, very tough decision with Bobby Dahlbeck at number one. How many other guys were truly in consideration for that number one spot? I had three other guys.
guys who I truly considered for the spot. I was looking also at uh, at Michael Chavis, who uh, who despite starting the year with an 80 game suspension for testing positive for uh, for a PED, uh, ended up looking better when he got on the field than he had. He he looked like a better prospect when he got on the field at the end of this year than he did at the end of 2017 when he had also been in consideration for the Red Sox number one prospect spot. I considered Jay Groom, who was the Red Sox number one prospect last year, but who underwent Tommy John surgery. Um, but, you know, to me, the, there, is, there is now greater risk with Groom now. Um, I know that we accept that there, there's a good likelihood that guys come back from Tommy John surgery, but, uh, but at the same time, you can't, you know, some guys don't. Some guys don't come back as the same pitcher that they were before the surgery, or it takes them years to get to that point. Um, and I also considered Tristan Cassis, the Red Sox first-round pick, who I do think has, you know, there's, there's a pretty interesting ceiling there, and uh, guys who have seen him in high school love him for good, you know, I mean, you hear Freddie Freeman comps um, on him as a high schooler, uh, which is pretty darn impressive, but I just didn't think he had, um, and most of the evaluators I talked to didn't think he had quite enough uh, demonstrated, well, he had no demonstrated pro track record to justify putting him at number one ahead of those other guys, even even as we respect what the ceiling is. And then I actually heard mention of one name that wasn't among those four. Those are the four guys I considered. Um, one, uh, one evaluator uh, considered Anthony Flores, who's, uh, who's a shortstop for the Red Sox, who played like two games uh, above the DSL this year, 17 years old, as the top, system, as the top prospect in their system because uh, you know, based on how it, based on the appearance of across the board tools and at, at a premium position, uh, he felt that he would take you know he would take Flores ahead of any of those other guys. But um, I hadn't that that was far from a consensus. Like there were a lot of people who didn't have Flores in the Red Sox top ten. Uh, so I initially wasn't inclined to put him in the top ten until I heard someone pegging him at number one. At which point I said, well, he should probably go in the top ten at least. Absolutely. Yeah, it's always really tricky, some of those DSL guys who on the one hand you hear all about the tools and the projection, but the, tra- the, the, the path from there to the major leagues is just so long with so many pratfalls. It really can be tough to really get a gauge sometimes. I do want to hit on Flores before we talk about some of these other guys. I mean, you mentioned kind of this all-around tool set um, at the same time, really, really, really young, born in 2000 for those of you who want to feel really old. Signed for 1.4 million, so there is a pedigree here. It's not like he came out of nowhere. What kind of player? Again, it's always very, very difficult to tell with a 17-year-olds or recent 18-year-olds. But what kind of player do the the most optimistic scouts envision with him? Um, across the board, tools that are average, that are you know that are at least average uh, and maybe plus. So you know uh, the the most optimistic. There's there are some people who question whether or not he'll stay. Uh, he'll stay at shortstop or if he'll end up moving to third base, which you hear with virtually anyone who's a shortstop at 17 years old. Yep. Um, but, you know, right now, for right now, he shows, you know, good range, good athleticism, good, you know, good ability to just move around the field and have a good feel for what he's doing uh, defensively with a, with a strong arm. So you're talking about, like, you're talking about 50 to 60 grades defensively. And then he's really always shown, dating back to his amateur days and, you know, and very much so, in his first exposure to the DSL this year, uh, a pretty advanced ability to get the, the barrel on the ball and to, and to hit balls pretty darn hard. So, you know, you're looking at a guy who has probably like a 60, you know, you, you could look at a, 60, a future 60-grade hitter um, with, uh, you know, who maybe is, maybe is more like a 45-50, maybe a 50-power guy 
um, because there is strength there, even uh, even as a young guy. And he had, you know, he had a very very good slash line in the DSL for what it's worth this year. You know, he was he was driving balls and getting extra base hits where you don't see that a ton at that uh, at that age and level. Um, so you know, it's the ability to stay. If he's a shortstop with you know who's a 60, you know who's a 300 hitter and the ability to you know, and the ability to post, let's say, a 450 slug. I mean, that's a that's a really really good player in this uh, in this era. Absolutely, even if it's you know 270 with a with a 430 slug for a shortstop, like you can yeah. you can more than live with that. Um, I do want to circle back to Jay Groom that's a little bit. From Xander Bogarts, by the way, prior to 2018. That is a very good point. Uh, circling back to Jay Groom real quick. This is some, probably one of the most divisive prospects, not just in the Red Sox system, but the industry as a whole. On the one hand, people see you know, what they saw as an amateur, left-hander, there's some stuff there, and still think there's, there's a ceiling there. Others see a guy who, frankly, was not very good when he did pitch, and then, or I should say, did not, was not very good when he did pitch in full-season ball has a lot of makeup red flags dating back to his amateur days, and now has a TJ on him. Um, you know, again, similar to I'm sure what you've heard, I've gotten everything from, you know, this is still someone who should be a top 100 prospect in baseball to someone who some pro scouting directors consider almost a non-prospect that, you know, they might, you know, trade a very low-level project for, but nothing of value just because they question whether the stuff actually plays, plus an injury, plus makeup stuff. Where, where... How do you come to, okay, this is where he should be uh, when you have a guy that that's draws such a, a wide range? You know, we talk about wide range with Bobby Dahlbeck. I feel like with Jay Groom, the range is even wider. Arguably, and, you know, the fact that he's a pitcher certainly plays into it. Um, you know, I, I think that it, it helps that I got a, a couple of really good looks at him in spring training and was able to talk to guys who had gotten looks at him in spring training. He was unbelievable in spring training. You know, he spent the offseason of 2017-18 Working out with uh, working out pretty regularly with Chris Sale down in Fort Myers, um, you know he's been uh, he has had he's he's had a lot of a lot of hard elements to his upbringing, including the arrest of his dad um, in the middle of uh, in the middle of the 2017 season. But um, the people who are around him uh, in the Red Sox organization, you know, care like he has he is he is held in in pretty high regard for the responsibility he feels for his teammates and for his family uh, at a very, as a, as a teenager, um, you know, he's, uh, he's someone who I think there's, you know, there, there is an industry wide there outside of the Red Sox organization. You'll, you'll encounter a lot of questions about his makeup. Um, those who have spent the time with him over the last couple of years uh, have found him very likable, very committed to what he's doing. Um, very intent on being, um, on being able to, you know, on being able to try to hit his, you know, to, Realize his his feeling. Um, Stuff-wise, like I said, those people who would, who saw him on the backfields in spring training uh, would have said, you know, would have would have seen legit like mid to upper rotation stuff. It was, you know, it was easy 94 to 96. It was, you know, just a devastating curveball. Uh, it was uh, it was a, a really easy feel for a changeup. So. As of the, you know, I named him number one last year when I was doing this, uh, when I was engaged in this exercise. As of March of 2018, he looked like a better prospect than the one who I had pegged at number one. And that wasn't just me, obviously. I'm not going to base it all on a couple of looks that I had on backfields against A-ball hitters. 
Um, but that was also, you know, that was also other evaluators who were getting a chance to uh, to get a look at him in the spring training setting when it looked, you know, it, it looked like he might be uh, in line for a potential significant uh, move up in prospect status. Then he had Tommy John, which I think, you know, does create some of those questions, uh, amplifies and amplifies any, you know, some of the concerns uh, entering the year. So I view him as a, as a worse prospect, uh, you know, as a, as a lesser prospect now than beforehand, uh, than, than when I had him at number one last year. Um, but, you know, with a lot of uncertainty, right, like the I, – I saw, I saw that upside, right, and other people saw that upside before the injury. So that's, that's kind of the difficulty of, of getting to a good feel for groom. But there's nothing – there was nothing that happened outside of the Tommy John this year that I think should diminish his prospect status. That's very, very fair. We'll see if he can get back. Uh, the goal right now is the middle of 2019. In terms of this top 10, how many guys were realistically, you mentioned there were four guys in consideration for number one. How many guys were there realistically in contention for this top 10? Was it like eight definite and then four guys for the final two spots? How did you kind of assess that, the tiers, if you will? I think that uh, I think that that's about right. I, I think that you know, and I'll I'll mention like you know the we had a pitcher vaulting ahead of Groom in the in the end. I decided that you know the the feedback that I was getting uh, late in this process on Darwinson Hernandez, who was never a consideration for number one, um, was like it, it was people people were kind of falling out of their chairs when they saw him in the Arizona Fall League this year. Um, he had a dominant end to the season in the rotation for high. Um, and uh, and then continued on and with just by striking out everyone who he faced at the start of the AFL season. Um, so he was he was clearly going to be a ten, along with uh, along with a couple of other uh, a couple of other pitchers who had been with him in high A. Tanner Houck and uh, Tanner Houck and Brian Mata were certainly going to be there. Um, and then uh, you had and then it became a little bit a little bit murkier um, after that. You know you had. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned Flores. He wasn't going to be in the top ten until the very end, um, and then he jumped in because of you know because of some very positive late evaluations of him. Um, there were also uh, there there were yeah after after that Mike Shawarn I think was a pretty safe one to be in the top ten. He was in the top ten last year, and there was nothing that detracted from his prospect status this year, um, and if anything increased it because he was able to perform in Double A and Triple A. And looked like a relatively near-term pitching depth option for the Red Sox. Um, and then beyond that, yeah, there was there was a bit of a scramble at the bottom to figure out, okay, you know, which you know which which profile of guy do you go for? How far away are you comfortable? Like, how many short-season guys are you comfortable including in the top ten? Yeah, that's always the, the the tricky part. You know, it's not always about upside. Proximity makes a huge, huge, huge difference in how many guys actually become big leaguers. Which, at the end of the day, is what we're ranking. Who are the guys who will be impact big leaguers? Uh, just to wrap up real quick, overall the state of this system, it's been bottom five uh, in the BA organization talent rankings for for a little while now. And again, for the right reasons, they successfully brought up homegrown guys, they made yeah. smart trades. It, it, there's some organizations at the bottom of the system for the wrong reasons. The Red Sox are there for the right reasons. Right. If you look at their talent 25 and under, like it's it, like, you know, the age 25 and under talent that was in the Red Sox organization this year was just concentrated at the big league level. It was spectacular. 
not the farm system, right? Absolutely. And, and again, that's what you want. You want World Series rings, not uh, number one farm system rankings. But moving forward, because at the end of the day, having a farm system that can supplement either talent or trades is something that makes an organization sustainable. How far away do you feel like this system is from getting out of, say, the bottom 10 and into the top 10? Is it going to take two drafts, three drafts, or do you think it could even happen? Or not bottom 10 to top 10, I should say bottom 10 to middle 10. Is this a, a one draft away, a two drafts away? How, how far away do you think they are? Yeah, I don't even know that it's a matter of being a draft away. And let's not forget the Red Sox draft position is going to be is going to be kind of constrained this year because they did spend beyond the highest tier of luxury tax penalties. So uh, they are, they will be their top pick is going to be bumped down ten spots, um, and they'll have less money available as a result of that. Um, but I, I think that we're going to. I think that they've they had a really good draft this year, uh, at least in terms of initial returns uh, with regards to high ceiling high school guys. Um, they also have had a couple of very interesting international signing classes. Uh, remember, they, they suffered the one-year penalty in which they were completely out of the uh, out of the international uh, out of the international game in 2016-2017. Um, so I think that you know, and they've they've had tremendous success in the international market, not just with their high-end signings, the Mancadas of the world, the Margos of the world, um, but also with guys who they find for you know. Five thousand, you know, ten thousand bucks, twenty-five thousand bucks, and turning those guys into uh, pretty good prospects. So it wouldn't shock me if within one year, uh, if by next year the Red Sox have enough of their short-season guys uh, making enough of an impression in the uh, in full-season ball that their that the perception of their farm system moves them out of the top, out of the bottom ten rather. Um, and I, I and again, I, I wouldn't be shocked if. In two years, I, I would almost be surprised at this point if in two years' time they hadn't moved out of that bottom 10 and possibly into like the upper half of farm systems. Absolutely. Well, uh, some of that obviously will depend on if they, if they make more trades for, for guys. But uh, there's no question, at the end of the day, they have the World Series ring. They did what they accomplished. They were one of the best teams the last 20 years. And that's the product of, of doing all the right things with a farm system, both in terms of bringing it up and trading some of the other guys. Well, Alex, thank you so, so much for joining us. Uh, we encourage you all to check out Alex's work at the Boston Globe. It's some of the best baseball writing in the country. And, of course, uh, you can check out the Red Sox Top 10 he put together for us at BaseballAmerica.com, as well as the chat. Um, Alex, thank you again for joining us, and uh, happy offseason. Thanks so much. Great talking to you, Kyle.